I'm Elizabeth Esty for the Emergency Medical Minute, bringing you another edition of the COVID-19 Digest, the podcast where we give you the numbers and sort through the most pertinent research on COVID. It's April 13th, more than a month since the World Health Organization declared a worldwide pandemic. Across the globe, we have now reached almost 2 million confirmed cases of COVID and more than 125,000 deaths. In the United States, there have been more than 600,000 confirmed cases and 25,757 deaths from COVID. New York State has 203,000 cases, more than any country other than the United States. Here in Colorado, we have nearly 8,000 cases confirmed, 1,500 people hospitalized, and 329 deaths. Alarmingly, there are now 78 outbreaks reported at residential and non-hospital healthcare facilities. The first paper we'll be looking at today is from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. We want to especially thank Elizabeth Moore from Instagram, who pointed out that there have been conflicting reports about how COVID is transmitted. Elizabeth asked us to dive deeper into research on airborne transmission of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. With her question in mind, a recent study about transmission potential of COVID-19 conducted at the University of Nebraska Medical Center caught our attention. As Elizabeth pointed out, there is a lack of evidence on exactly how SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted, thus affecting how isolation precautions and guidelines have been written and managed. It was initially thought that COVID was transmitted only through droplets and person-to-person contact. Subsequently, there were some indications that the virus can be transmitted through the air. The Nebraska study looked at 13 individuals who tested positive for COVID-19. Nebraska, you may remember, is where Ebola patients, one of the places where Ebola patients were contained and managed in the last Ebola outbreak. The cases in Nebraska were managed either in the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit for those who required hospitalization or in the National Quarantine Unit for those who were asymptomatic or had mild illness. Of these 13 patients, only three were admitted and observed in the NBU. Each of those three lucky individuals had his or her own isolated room and private bathroom. These special rooms had air samples and surface samples tested to determine where contact with the virus was most likely. Staff wore PPE at all times, of course, and practiced good hand hygiene and changed gloves between rooms. There was a limit to the number of entries and exits made by staff. Of note, these were all negative pressure rooms. Three types of samples were taken during the survey. There were surface samples, high volume air samples, and low volume personal air samples. The 40 surface samples fell into three general categories of location, common room surfaces, personal items, and toilets. Personal items were those items considered to be handled routinely by individuals in isolation. Those included cell phones, exercise equipment, TV remotes, and medical equipment. Room surfaces were defined as areas like ventilation grates, tabletops, window ledges, and toilet samples were taken to evaluate the potential for viral shedding during toileting. Air samples were also collected. These were 45 samples collected both in the isolation rooms and in the hallways of the NBU and the NQU during sampling activities. Air samples were collected in the room while patients were present. Both surface and aerosol samples were then analyzed by PCR. Of note, the study also looked at the relationship between body temperature, that is whether or not the patient had a fever, and environmental contamination. Temperatures were taken orally. Of the 163 samples obtained, 77% had positive PCR results for the SARS-CoV-2. On the 
surfaces of all of those room surfaces sampled, 80 were positive for SARS-CoV-2 RNA. The air handling and ventilation grates in the NBUs had the highest concentration of viral gene copies. The cell phones were 81% positive by PCR. The TV remotes were 64% positive, And the toilets were 81% positive. Of the air samples, room air samples were positive in 63% of cases. Hallway air samples, this is outside of the people's rooms, were positive in more in 66% of cases. And the highest airborne concentrations were from personal samplers in the NBU, especially when the patient was receiving oxygen through a nasal cannula. The bottom line here seems to be that patients with COVID-19 are really very contagious and they get their virus all over everything. The results demonstrate that there's a significant environmental contamination in rooms with patients infected with SARS-CoV-2, regardless of the degree of symptoms or the acuity of their illness. Contamination was found broadly in all sample types. Positive samples from patients' toilets were consistent with other studies suggesting viral shedding in stool. On average, samples collected from patients hospitalized in the NBU, those are the sicker patients, had the higher percentage of positive SARS-CoV-2 at approximately 85%. But samples obtained from those residential NQU, the asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic COVID patients, had similar percentages during sample collections, particularly in days five through seven. The average percentage of positive SARS-CoV-2 samples in NQU rooms did drop to 65% by days eight to nine, which may just indicate a reduction in viral shedding. There is no correlation, there was no correlation discovered between environmental contamination and body temperature. That is to say that infected individuals can shed viral RNA whether or not they have a fever. So the key takeaways here, researchers found that the virus can spread through direct contact droplets and person-to-person, as well as indirect content, that's through foments, contaminated objects, and airborne transmission. Data suggests that viral aerosol particles are produced by those infected with COVID-19 even in the absence of cough. The virus may be expelled from those infected with COVID-19, including those who are mildly ill or asymptomatic through aerosol processes like breathing, talking, coughing, and transported to their local environment. The study authors recommend airborne isolation standards, including respiratory precautions and routine systematic environmental cleaning and disinfecting of patient areas and the surroundings in order to keep healthcare workers and other patients safe. This is Dr. Dylan Lloyden. I'm an emergency physician with the Emergency Medical Minute. Since our last digest, an article titled Compassionate Use of Remdesivir for Patients with Severe COVID-19 was published in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. Like hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir has shown antiviral activity towards SARS-CoV-2 in vitro. It is a prodrug of a nucleotide analog which inhibits replication of RNA viruses and has been proposed as therapy for several viral infections, including the filovirus Ebola and coronavirus including MERS and SARS-CoV-2. The authors of the study noted that 68% of the patients who received treatment with remdesivir markedly improved. While there is enthusiasm for this study and clinicians worldwide eagerly await data supporting its use, this study has major limitations and essentially tells us nothing about the actual efficacy or safety of remdesivir. This drug does hold promise, 
but this study should be met with a healthy amount of skepticism. Let's talk about study design. This was an open-label study of remdesivir administered to a cohort of hospitalized patients with confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection and acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Patients were those who had been approved for compassionate use of remdesivir by the manufacturer. Patients were to be treated for 10 days and followed for 28 days. There were no sample size calculations. There was no predefined primary endpoint or any predefined endpoints, and there was no control group, most importantly. 61 people were chosen for the study based on these criteria, but eight patients were excluded from data collection, including seven patients with no post-treatment data and one with a dosing error. There is no mention, unfortunately, of the conditions of the eight patients who received remdesivir, but for whom no data was collected. Did they improve or did they die? We just don't know. Of the 53 patients whose data were included, 22 were in the U.S., 22 in Europe or Canada, and 9 from Japan. So as I said, patients were to receive a 10-day course of remdesivir, and 75% of the patients completed the planned 10-day course. The rest received a shorter course of treatment for undisclosed reasons. Of the group, 64% were receiving positive pressure ventilation, 57% of them were on mechanical ventilators, and 8% were in ECMO. So that leaves about 35-36% who were on supplemental oxygen or room air only. So in terms of outcomes, 68% of the cohort showed some improvement in their respiratory failure, and 15% worsened during the study period. 13% of the patients died, and all of those who died had received positive pressure ventilation at the time of starting remdesivir. Almost all of them were mechanically ventilated. Those patients not requiring positive pressure ventilation at the beginning of the study universally did well. So I'm afraid there's so many problems with this study, and we'll kind of go through them one by one. Overwhelmingly, the biggest problem and the most important thing to take home from this is that there was no control group. And the lack of a control group has huge implications for any conclusions you can draw. Without a control group, we simply have no way to know if remdesivir was helpful or harmful. And we'll touch on this a little bit more. So there was real lack of uniformity of the patient cohort. It included very sick patients on ECMO, but then it also included patients who were just on some or even no supplemental oxygen. There was no information, unfortunately, about disease biomarkers such as D-dimer or LDH, CRP, ferritin, etc., or any markers of global physiologic severity such as a SOFA score or Apache scores. This heterogeneity of study subjects and especially inclusion of people who are not that sick renders the results less clinically relevant. We simply don't know who would benefit from remdesivir. Now, patient selection was also a problem. The authors don't disclose how or why they got the 61 patients they did. It should be noted that thousands of people sought treatment with this drug. So why did these 61 patients get included? We just don't know. Perhaps Gilead excluded many patients at a higher likelihood of dying. For example, patients on vasopressors or patients with renal failure. Additionally, I mentioned the eight patients who mysteriously weren't included in the data collection and we don't have any mention of their outcomes. We have no idea if these patients did very poorly or even died. Unfortunately, this isn't disclosed. It's important to note that there was no primary endpoint defined for the study, and this is really important because without a defined primary endpoint, investigators are free to select outcomes or endpoints after data analysis, which just happen to have had positive outcomes or associations. So this lack of a primary endpoint really undermines any findings. Additionally, generally these patients had poor outcomes. So the patients who started out well did well ultimately, and that's not surprising. On average, these patients were enrolled around 12 days into their illness, 
And generally, if patients are going to crump, they do so before then. So if you select patients at 12 days, then you may just simply get what you get. Among the patients on non-invasive ventilatory support, five out of the seven did well, but one died. And one was ultimately intubated at the end of the study, which again, isn't that surprising if you'd done well up until that point. Among the intubated patients, half did well, but the remainder either died or remained on ventilatory support at the end of this at the end of the 28-day study period. So while the authors note that patients essentially, quote, did better than expected, really outcomes were not great for seriously ill patients. Thank you.